Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hello and welcome to Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We're a podcast going beyond the badge to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. Glad to have you along for another episode today. I am your co-host, Bert Hinson. It's going to be a hard episode today, I think, because of the subject matter, but an important one if you're a parent, grandparent, uh, caregiver to a child. Some disturbing information, but it's things that you need to know in order to make your uh, children have a, a safer environment. So some great info today you're going to be uh, hearing about very, very shortly. Before we bring on our guest today, though, we have to bring in our host. He is one of the most level-headed and laid-back guys I know, Mr. <laughs> Michael Warren. How are you today, sir? I think you've been better off saying big head. No. Nothing, nothing flat about this round melon right here, buddy. I would, you know, I, was, I, I would love to see you in action when you were in law enforcement because you. I would like to see how you diffuse situations because you're just so laid-back all the time. To be very transparent, there were many times that I, I was the opposite of defusing and I was infusing the, <laughs> the situation, to be honest with you. But but I appreciate that, though. And, and you know what? It's kind of ironic to me, the, the subject matter we're going to talk about today, because this time of year, this holiday season that we're in the middle of right now is one of my favorite times of the year. I, I'm all in, all in this time of year. I, I love it because of my kids. It's horrific to me to think about not every kid enjoys this time of year. Not, not every kid gets the chance to be around people that they love and that love them. And unfortunately, that, that's the reality. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So as we do that, what can you tell us uh, about our guest today? Our guest today is currently assigned to the Tactical Investigations Unit for the Dearborn, Michigan Police Department. He's been the lead investigator in over 600 cases involving those with human trafficking, child sexual abuse, child abuse, and criminal sexual conduct, among others. He's a qualified expert in cell phone record analysis and data recovery and a certified forensic computer and cell phone examiner. He's also a former member of both the Michigan Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force and the FBI Violent Crimes Against Children Task Force. It is our pleasure to welcome Detective Sergeant James Isaacs to the podcast. Glad to have you along today, sir. Thank you, guys, and thank you guys for having me. James, for our listeners, I have to. I try to be very transparent about how we know each other. James and I, we, we met several years ago. Turned out we taught for a training company, and we, we just didn't know each other through the training company, but we met through our kids. And... Um, uh, Brent, Taking the, way, the same karate class. That's, that's exactly right. But there was something even worse than that. Brent, I, I've got I've to share a quick story if I could. Sure. Go, go ahead. The, this guy right here, he talked me into helping him coach a little league baseball team one year. <laughs> okay. And, and, you know, I'm like, oh, yeah. You know, we both had boys that were on there. And it was a few games in. I realized that wasn't for me. Because I was, I was, mm-hmm. I, I was sitting there at first base with, with one of our kids, and uh, the, not not our kids that we, you know, our sons, but somebody on our team, and this kid kept picking up handfuls of dirt and throwing them up in the air, and I kept telling him to stop. I said, "Stop that!" <laughs> and finally, I'd had had enough, dude. And I get real quiet with him. I said, "If you do that again, you're not going to enjoy what happens." <laughs> and, and and so for for my my career sake and and my reputation. I decided probably shouldn't do that anymore. So, but we had a heck of a good time. But James and I have been friends for several years. As much as I appreciate his friendship, I think that the work that he does is incredible. I, I think it's it's admirable. So we're, we're going to get into that now. But as I do with most of our guests, what was it 
that brought you into police work in the first place? Well, initially, when I was in college, I was going to school on a chemistry degree because I wanted to work in the in the labs, doing more of the DNA type stuff for investigations. And then I got to the organic chemistry part, and I realized that that was not in the in the cards for me in life. And so I changed my major from chemistry to public law and government. And I figured, well, I still like the investigative side of it. That intrigued me. So instead of working in the labs, I figured, well, now I'll just go and become an officer and, and work my way up into hopefully a detective bureau someday and doing some investigations. Oh, how'd you end up in Dearborn? Well, initially I worked in uh, the city of Clawson, which is another small city just north of Detroit here where, where we're at. And then... Uh, one of the guys that I went to the police academy with went to Dearborn right away. And I stayed in contact with him. They had some openings. It was a much larger police department. It afforded more opportunities to do different things, better benefits, better pay. So I applied for it and I was lucky enough to, to get the job. And I've been there now for a little over the last 16 years. 16 years. And before we get into the work that you do now, 16 years is a long time. And uh, sure feels like it. <laughs> Goodness knows you look different than you did 16 <laughs> years ago. But, but you know, the thing is, so law enforcement changes, but so does society. From your perspective, one of the things that changes, uh, technology changes and changes significantly and very quickly. And that poses problems for law enforcement that we'll get into. Uh, I, I told you as we were uh, getting ready for the podcast that I was going to ask you, what would you say is the biggest difference between where you are right now as a law enforcement professional and where you were when you started? What, what What's the biggest difference? I would say that my eyes are a lot open, a lot more than what they were when I first became an officer. You know, when you, when you first become an officer, you're on the street, uh, you're running and gunning, you're looking for, you know, cars to stop, you're looking for arrests, people with warrants, people who have drugs, weapons, you're going to calls. You don't have too much time to think of a about a lot of different things that are going on. You know, you're focused on your on your task at hand, so to speak. And then now being in the investigative side, that does not bode well for you when you're so tunnel visioned on, you know, just the task at hand. You have to think of so many different things in order to be a successful investigator. You know, you have to take into consideration how to properly secure evidence, how to document chain of custody, how uh, to interview a person, what interview techniques that you should use to potentially get you to where you want uh, statement wise from that individual. And then you have to take into consideration different legal aspects, you know, whether or not you can show somebody a photo lineup or if it's got to be a live lineup or, you know, exigent circumstances versus getting a search warrant versus subpoena power. So there's the picture's uh, a lot broader that you have to to deal with, which opens your eyes up to a lot more things that are going on around you in these types of investigations and to the bigger picture of what is actually happening here compared to, all right, I'm just responding. Tell me who, what, when, where, why, and how, and you know, I'll deal with it and for now and then let the detectives figure it out later. Well, would it be safe to say in your experience that a lot of people, when they get into this job, especially, and we're not bashing the road. I, I love working it's the a, road. It's, just it, a, it's a different job though. Yeah. It's a completely different animal. And anytime we have newer investigators coming up to our detective bureau from working the road, I try to tell them all the time. And I know a lot of the other senior detectives do too, is you have to listen to people when you're on the road. You have to figure out the who, what, when, where, why, and how as fast as possible. 
Well, that's not going to get you a lot of success as a detective. Certainly, we have to get the answers to all those questions as well, but sometimes it takes a little bit more prodding in order to get those answers. And so just having that, you know, that direct line of questioning isn't always in, you know, your best interest. You know, learning how to change in that style of thinking and that style of interrogation, it is a big change from somebody coming from the road. I always equate it to a tool belt. There's a lot of people, and I'm raising my hand for my for the listeners here. So many of us, when we first start out, we have one or two tools on our tool belt that we are somewhat competent, and I say somewhat, in using. But we use those same two tools no matter what the job is. And they don't always lend themselves well to some jobs. Where a detective, is, you have a bunch of tools, and you have to be very selective. It's almost like a surgeon. Not every scalpel is the same. Not every pair of tweezers is the same. And that's the type that's required from detectives like yourself. Correct. I mean, not every situation is the same. Exactly what you said. What worked yesterday may not work today. Or it may work today. Or it may work, but you need to tweak it just a little bit. That forces you to take into consideration the larger picture of what's actually happening here. You know, using technology now nowadays with everybody's got a phone. Most people have two phones, right? And everybody has their face in their phone a good majority of the day, whether it's, you know, social media or phone calls or text messages or searching stuff on the internet or looking for the, the next place that they want to travel to. They're constantly doing stuff on their phone. And when you can look at the data on somebody's phone, you get a true picture of everything that happens in their daily life. And taking that information now, forces you to also apply that to, you know, your interrogations because everybody watches the first 48, right? <laughs> everybody watches the first 48 and they always say, you know, when you get them in the interrogation room, you know, they'll look around and I'm like, man, I feel like I'm on the first 48. Right now. <laughs> well, guess what? You are, yeah. right? This is your opportunity to sit in the seat. You're here. You know all the things that we can do from being on the first 48. You know that we can track phones. You know that we can get data off of your phone. You know that we can get deleted data and we can recover it. So why don't we just stop with the dance and tell me what I need to know here? And, you know, it has it has worked to our benefits. Sometimes they still call you on your bluff, but you, you got to be able to use that to your advantage. Unlike some of the fictional shows, not everything is retrievable. And it's, it's the same with DNA and all that type of evidence. Not all that happens in, in half an hour or, no. or then the first hour. It takes time. You know, a lot of times it can take time just to get the court's permission to get that that information. Correct. I, I saw an article when I was doing the research for this episode, and one of the articles that I saw was one that you had been interviewed in about, uh, what are these things called, these trackers? What are, what are those things? The, the Apple AirTags. The Apple AirTags. I, I saw this article on it. What is an Apple AirTag, first of all? So the Apple AirTag is about the size of a quarter, and it's something that you can purchase for, I don't know, $25, $30. And it is meant to put into something that is important to you, like your car keys, your backpack, you know, your laptop bag, whatever may be important to you. So that way you never lose this stuff. You'll, you'll be able to track it. But what a lot of people are using it for now is nefarious reasons, right? It goes back to the old adage, we can't have good things because somebody's <laughs> going to do something bad with it. And certainly I don't think Apple had any 
idea of, of how often or how much this would be used by criminals, but it is being used by criminals. It's, yeah, well, what are they using it for, though? Well, they'll use it to track people's cars that they want to steal later on. Um, they'll use it to stalk or harass victims unknowingly. You know, those are predominantly the two areas where we see them the most. Now, when we're talking about these air tags, just because I find this topic fascinating, uh, how, how big are these things? How would you describe them size-wise? Yeah, like I said, they're about the size of a quarter. A quarter. Yeah. I, I just need to throw this out to you, brother. When, when I was assigned to DEA, we would get court orders for trackers. And those trackers, <laughs> they weren't the size of a quarter. The, the hardest they still thing, aren't. Yeah, the, the hardest thing is was them finding it because they're so big and, and you'd have to go and replace the batteries on these. It things. had a little blinking but red man, line on it like the movies do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Seriously, it looked like the car bomb from Lethal Weapon. Yeah. You know, it had the blinking light. Duck cut red or green, red or green, red or green. Technology has evolved. And now we've got people that can put these and they can track people or they can track things mm -hmm. much more easily. Something that used to be a very finite group of people that could do this. And now just about anybody could do anybody it. Anybody can do it. Now, certainly Apple has built in some security features into it to where if an AirTag has been following you for too long, it will alert you on your phone. If you have an iPhone, it will pop up, you know, that there's been an AirTag that's been following you. It will show you everywhere that it's followed you and how long it's been with you. And then you can get the serial number from that. And then that's what I would need in order to do a search warrant to Apple in order to figure out who put it there. Google phones, there's another app that you can download in order to ensure that an AirTag, that you're notified if an AirTag is following you. But they will also, if they, if the AirTags stay out of range of the host phone, Okay. That they're associated with for an extended amount of time, they'll start playing like, you know, like a chirping sound or something. So that way there's an audio alert as well to hey, somebody. Well, Brent, what would you do if you got an alert on your phone that there was some device that had been following you for a couple of days? Well, it wouldn't apply to me because I never leave the house, but it would freak me out for sure. <laughs> <laughs> the bedroom yeah. to the bathroom to, to the office to the kitchen somebody's downstairs okay, yeah, in the basement the... would be more like it for me <laughs> i bring that up because number one i, I find it fascinating but i, I just want to illustrate for those that are listening how quickly technology is changing brent when he introduced you he uh, listed a couple task forces that you'd been a part of how did you come to be involved in those task forces so uh, a little bit of luck in 2008 is when I joined our detective bureau. And at that time, we were predominantly, we had detective sergeants in our detective bureau, and they had just got rid of the promotional spot in order to help save some money because that was during the, you know, the economic downturn. And so uh, at that time, I was just a corporal and I went upstairs to our detective bureau. And I was fortunate enough to be kind of assigned to unofficially a couple senior detective sergeants um, who took me under their wing and and basically taught me everything that I know. I mean, without them, I certainly wouldn't be in the position that I am today. And because of that, they oftentimes got called out to all the major cases. So because they were getting called out to all the major cases, I started getting called out to all the major cases. And so they, you know, like a good detective sergeant, delegated everything to me. <laughs> and so I was doing a lot of the work, you know, which is that's how you learn, Right. And it was at this time that we didn't have anybody that was doing anything really with cell phones at this time. And now this is, you know, 2009, 2010. And to be honest, there wasn't a whole lot going on with cell phones at the time other than people knew to get records, but they didn't really know 
how to exploit those records very well. There may have been some basic understanding of it, but there certainly wasn't a, anybody who was doing any kind of forensics. And so I had another acquaintance who worked for another city near us, and he suggested that I get a hold of the, the State Police Internet Crimes Against Children's Task Force because they would train me up on how to do all this technical stuff. And then not only would they train me, but I'd get equipment and then all the training would be paid for by them and not for the city. So I brought it up to my lieutenant at the time and uh, she goes, well, what's it going to cost me? I said, well, it's going to cost me three days a week being out there on the task force. And she goes, bye, have fun. <laughs> so that's how I got started with the, the state police internet crimes against children's task force. Now, the last thing I wanted to do was do anything related to investigating kids. I didn't have any kids at that time. Well, I had just had my first son just before all this. I, I always wanted to do all the big crimes, you know, the bank robberies, the homicides, the, you know, robberies, whatever it may be. The last thing I wanted to do was, was kid stuff. I didn't want to see that kind of stuff. I didn't want to be involved with it. I didn't want anything to do with it. Well, real quick, would it be safe to say that your view was like most cops view, like when you were working the road and the mic keyed up and they called your unit number, if it had the word juvenile in there at any part, whether they were the victim, suspect or witness, it's like, son of a gun. <laughs> yeah. There yeah. goes the night. What can I do? Yes. Let me go crash my car. Real uh, that's quick right. so somebody else can, can take this run for me. Yeah, pretty much. But I knew I was going to have to get exposed to it a little bit. You know, I was hoping to stay more on the forensic side and not so much the investigative side, but going out to that task force uh, was probably the best thing that ever happened in my career. Uh, so I, I was on the task force from 2012 until 2019 with the state police task force. And then uh, in 2014, I also joined our local FBI violent crimes against children's task force. So I was on both task forces simultaneously from 2014 to 2019. And, you know, with that, the state police task force, so they focus primarily on internet related crimes against children. So, you know, people who are downloading and possessing child pornography, people who are abusing children online, those are the types of cases that, they, that they're dealing with. The FBI, they do that as well, but then they also deal with like Amber Alerts, Anytime that there is a violent crime against a child uh, where another jurisdiction needed some help, whether it be a homicide or a kidnapping, you know, they would call us out for that. Child sex trafficking, we did a lot of, you know, sex trafficking, human trafficking investigations as well. But between those two task forces, I found myself very quickly immersed in, you know, child pornography. Would it be safe to say that your perception of the prevalence of that type of crime, were, were you severely underestimating how much of it was out there? I was blown away by how much of it is actually out there. And if people knew, truly knew how much of it was out there, I think there would be a lot of a lot of uproar within the country if they truly knew and, tr and cared. It's hard because we say we want to protect our most vulnerable in society, and, and kids certainly fit that bill. But there almost has to be this ignorant bliss in society because yeah. people would be paranoid if they actually knew yeah. how bad it is. Plausible deniability. If I don't know it exists, it doesn't exist. It, they often refer to it uh, in this line of work as the seedy underbelly 
uh, of society, you know, that people just don't know it's there. But you, you and I uh, were talking before this this podcast uh, about different cases, mm-hmm. and, and there was one that that you had shared with me that that really it really hit home to me, and that was the one involving a sexual assault uh, of a female by, I believe it was her stepdad. Is that correct? Correct. So how did you come to be involved in that particular case? Yeah. So in this case, this case happened uh, about 2015. Uh, It wasn't my case. It was one of my partner's cases who investigated it. I ended up coming in to do the forensics on it, but then got involved on the federal side because I was on the federal task force at that time. So initially what happened was, is a disclosure came in to our police department from a parent of a friend of the victim. The victim had shared some information to her friend, who then in turn told her her mom or her dad, who then called us, and, and that's how we got involved. Essentially what happened was is the girl at the time was 15 years old, and she was being sexually assaulted by her stepfather. And she reported to our investigator that she'd been sexually assaulted by him over you know numerous times over the course of six or seven years. And we found out very quickly that he actually was arrested when I believe she was about eight or nine years old in another jurisdiction for sexual assault of a minor, and she was the victim. Same stepdad, same, same stepdad, victim, same just victim. much younger at that time. Correct. So, okay. Like I said, I, I want to say she was about eight or nine years old. And so he was charged with, in the state of Michigan, first degree criminal sexual conduct, which is a, a life offense. Ultimately, it was pled down for whatever reason to criminal sexual conduct, fourth degree, which is a misdemeanor. Um, So he was given probation. And part of his probation was that he wasn't supposed to have any more contact with her. He definitely wasn't supposed to live in the house anymore. Okay. And just so so our listeners understand why, and not this particular case, generally speaking, why are cases like that pled down? What, what, What are some of the factors that lead to this heinous crime being pled down to something, in my opinion, much, much less, too much less. Yeah. Um, in this particular case, I don't know. Um, I don't think we ever really found out the reason why. But in a lot of cases, it depends. It could be the evidence. Maybe it's just circumstantial evidence versus you know some good, hard, concrete evidence. It could be witnesses that are no longer available for whatever reason. They've moved out of the state. We can't find them or they're they're dead. Or same with the victim. You know, they could be unavailable for some reason. Or sometimes, unfortunately, when it comes with kids is the parents have a, a very real concern, which I understand their concern. I, I truly do. But they have a concern of putting the child up on the stand and making them testify because they don't want them to be re-victimized. And I completely wholeheartedly understand that. To be honest with you, it would be a hard decision for myself, you know, if it happened to one of my four children, to make the decision on whether or not they should get up on the stand. And part of the reason behind that is because the American judicial system, I mean, one of the rights that we have as an American citizen is the right to confront our accuser. It makes it very, very difficult in cases like this because it does feel like they're being re-victimized. Exactly. I mean, anytime anytime you have an attorney questioning a 9, 10, 11, 12, whatever year old child, you know, they're going to feel, whether it's the prosecution or the defense, they're going to feel like somebody doesn't believe them. And then they're going to get angry. And then they're going to shut down. 
or they may not have the best, you know, recollection of the events because they're so young. Or in some cases, wouldn't they have some sort of gratification from hearing them describe it again, you know, in some sick way? Sure. Oh, yeah. For, for the suspects, absolutely. And, and I've seen that in court before. But, yeah, but by the way, that takes a tremendous amount of self-control when you see that type of reaction. Yeah. I mean, I've seen them physically pleasure themselves in court before while listening to their victims testify. What do you think that makes a child think in their head when they're sitting up there on a stand and they're looking at the person who's raped them and now they're pleasuring themselves to this child retelling what happened? Well, it's funny you should say that. I was watching a video today that showed the reaction of the victim's parents. It was a homicide case because of the way that the defendant was behaving in court. And those are grown adults and they were having trouble containing themselves. I can't imagine what it's got to be like for an innocent kid to see something like that and try to process that. Yeah, I, I can't imagine it either. You know, these, these children who do this, who get up there and, and testify so uh, strongly, I mean, to me, there's, there's no better definition than courageous or brave than that any case and i had to bring that up because i get pissed off a lot of times when i hear about some of these plea deals but the guy pled to a misdemeanor csc4 what was the result of that so conviction? he was he was put on probation i don't remember what the length of probation was but part of the probation was is that he wasn't supposed to be around her anymore or living in the house now over the course of the next 6 years before our agency got involved come to find out through our investigation that he had been living there, and he had continued sexually assaulting this young girl. He'd been living the, where? At the house. With? With her and the, and the mom. And CPS was called numerous times, more than a handful. I don't remember the exact number, but they were called more than a handful of times, and every time nothing was ever done for one reason or another. He wasn't there, or they couldn't verify that he was living there, or I think even sometimes mom wouldn't even let them in the house, or- Mom wouldn't let CPS talk to the child or the child didn't make any kind of disclosures. Whatever the different circumstances were, there were numerous times where CPS was contacted and nothing ever happened. So he remained in the house over the course of the next six years and was abusing this child. And I want you to think of six years post the initial conviction. Six. I, I just, I can't wrap my head around yeah. that. To the best of my recollection, you know, there were never any more police reports made, or if they were, they weren't investigated very well. But the system completely failed this young girl. Completely. There's no doubt about it. So eventually, once we get involved, we end up doing, our investigator ends up doing a search warrant and collects his cell phone. And I did uh, the forensic analysis on it, and I found numerous videos and pictures that he had took of himself sexually abusing his stepdaughter. At this point, given the circumstances of the case, I talked with the investigator and asked them if they would mind if I took the child pornography aspect of it to the federal prosecutors. Because knowing what I knew from being on the task force, the feds, when it comes to child pornography— they have mandatory minimums. They will hammer people. In the state, at least in the state of Michigan, the state courts won't necessarily always do that. And I truly think that our, our state level penalties for child pornography need to be increased significantly, you know, to match 
that of the at least match that of the of the federal statutes. But uh, they were in agreement of it because the federal side does not have a a rape statute. What we decided to do was kind of bifurcate the investigation. So the state prosecuted the sexual assault of the victim. So he was charged with multiple counts of criminal sexual conduct in the first degree, again, which are life offenses. Same offense charged with initially. And I believe there was even, because he was a repeat offender, you know, there was a habitual notice. And I, I think that there may have been some child sexually abusive activity charges. I don't recall. But nonetheless, the sexual assault was charged on the state side. And then the child pornography aspect was charged on the federal side. And I called up one of my U.S. attorney friends at the time who I had worked with several times. And I started explaining the case to her and I didn't even get halfway through it. And she said, yes. (laughs) That's all she said is, yes, I will take it. Give me everything that you have. So we did. And he ended up taking a plea deal. And he ended up getting, I believe it was 42 years federally for the child pornography. And then I believe he got around 30 to 35 years on the state side for the sexual assaults. Brent, Brent, did you catch that? What's that? This guy, and I'm glad he got hammered, but this guy got more time for possessing child pornography. The actual act? Than he did. Yes. I, I don't get it. I don't and, either. But as an investigator, that has to be incredibly difficult for you because how do you explain that to this little girl? I mean, how do you explain that to this little girl that that her being assaulted wasn't a, worth as much as him taking photos? How do it. you how do you make that explanation? You can't. And that brings me to another point here, because I think this case right here really illustrates some of these things. I found it very difficult, and I would like to say I got to a point where I understood it, but I didn't. I found it very difficult whenever I would put a solid case together. And I knew it was a good case mm-hmm. and it would get pled out yeah. as difficult as it was for me. I wasn't dealing with the same type case as you were. How do you as, as a, an investigator or more importantly, how do you as a dad, how do you take that, that realization that, man, I've done everything I could do and it's out of my hands. How do you handle that as, as a dad? I don't Hopefully I never have to figure out how I would handle it as a dad. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if something ever happened to my children, I don't even want to. I don't even want to think about it. Yeah, how do you keep your level of professionalism with these folks that you're sitting across from? You know, interrogating or talking to them. Well, you know, it's it's funny you say that because I get asked that question often, and all of the guys that I worked with on these two task forces are some of the best cops I've ever worked with in my life. We get asked this question all the time, and for me, what it boils down to is this. The reason why I keep my professionalism when dealing with these people and not just pummeling them or whatever, you know, doing what we really want to do is because I don't want them to get off on on my account. And how bad I would feel for that child if that person got off because I couldn't keep my level of professionalism. And speaking specifically of this girl, she has to recognize that the system let her down. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it nearly, it probably at least half of her life, she was being sexually abused. Yeah. And it happened not only once, but twice. And we knew about it. Yeah. And it was only the second time. I mean, so in Michigan and even in the, in the federal rules of evidence too, when you take a crime, you know, like child pornography to trial, 
it's up to the trier of fact on whether or not a it meets well it's got to meet the definition right and part of the definition is is the person under the age of 18 and then the second part of the definition is is the person involved in a sexual act meaning that there's some kind of penetration whether it be oral anal or, or vaginal or is the picture or video focused on their genitalia right so in order for the trier of fact to make this determination they've got to do what they've got to view the material and if you play this video of this stepfather having sexual intercourse with his 15 year old stepdaughter in front of 12 people what are they going to come back with on a criminal sexual conduct first degree charge if they came back with anything other than guilty i'd quit my job because how can you say that this person is not guilty of criminal sexual conduct of a minor when we can prove she's 15 through her birth certificate we don't even need her to take the stand at that point and then we play a video but you're going to plead out i mean to me cases like that and i get it there's time and resources and you know everybody's busy especially in the county that you know we live in and work in but in in cases like that where these people are are so abhorrent there's no reason that we shouldn't be getting them mandatory life in prison because you can't fix them you know everybody this is a perfect example of how you can't fix them you can't and you know i i kind of equate it like like this to some people everybody has their own sexual preferences whether it be guy likes girl girl likes girl guy likes guy you know it doesn't matter but when you have the the preference of an adult and a child, you're not going. To, there's no amount of therapy that's going to fix that. Yep. Right. You may be able to hide it for a little while, but it's never going to fix it. You're always going to have that drive. They're going to continue. The recidivism rate is so high with these individuals that as soon as they get out, they're going to go right back. Well, that to it. that it's almost a guaranteed thing. I wanted to bring up because we know what the problem is. It would seem to me that the solution would be, well, let's change the law that when we get these folks in front of us, they don't get off so easily and they go away for a long time. Is that something that are there child yeah, advocacy groups that are lobbying for that sort of thing? There's lots of them out there. There's some here in Metro Detroit. Um, there's a really big one down in Dallas, which the Dallas Advocacy Center, they put on a spectacular training every year for cops around the world to attend. And I've been there before, and I've, I've seen law enforcement there from Europe, from Asia, uh, from Australia. I mean, so cops around the world go to that event, and it's, it's fantastic. But when, whenever there appears to be some kind of question on should we do more with the, the legal side or the penalty side, then you have the people raising their hands that say, hey, well, what, what about the person who's got pictures of their kids in the bathtub? Or what about the person who accidentally clicks on the wrong link? I'm here to tell you right now. Those are not the people that we find, and those are not the people that we go after. The people that we go after are people who are downloading, possessing, distributing videos of children having sex, right? This isn't just a, a cute picture of your two-year-old standing you know, with a bare butt in a, in a tub. This isn't a cute picture of, of your child with a pumpkin painted on their butt for Halloween. Although I would never advocate for those to be po posted on social media <laughs> right. anywhere because somebody because somebody's going to take somebody's, it differently. Somebody's using that. For gratification. For gratification. Absolutely. Um, so I think people are concerned that, well, we're going to get these people who are accidentally clicking on links. 
that's not who we're going after. I can 100% guarantee those are not the people that we're going after. The people we are going after, you know, and this kind of gets to your question earlier about how prevalent is this in society. We could arrest a person every day and not put a dent into it. Every day around the country, in every city, in every state, and not put a dent into it. There's multiple people, not just somebody. There are multiple people in every city, in every state of this country, every day, who are downloading and possessing this stuff. And you talked about not being able to fix this problem. I don't have nearly the experience in this arena that you do, but I I remember very clearly being called to a house on a death investigation. And it happened to be a guy who had been convicted federally of possessing child pornography. And his pre-trial or his uh, pre-sentencing oversight happened to stop by his house this day. He was deathly afraid of going to jail deathly afraid of it. So he thought that he was in trouble because he had actually sent a birthday card to a little kid who uh, went to daycare in his neighborhood. So he thought he was going to jail. So he goes downstairs in his basement and he kills himself. And and so my partner and I, we're we're doing this investigation. What do you think we found in his wallet? Probably pictures of child. He was prohibited from having any type of computer or anything like that because that's what he did. But in his wallet, he had these piece of paper. I have no idea where he printed them off from, but he had these pieces of child porn that he had folded up and he was sticking back in the corners of the wallet. The dude was deathly afraid of going to jail for something and it still didn't stop him. It still didn't. They can't they can't control themselves. And it's and it's not just pictures too. Because right. that's the other argument that you hear all the time. Well it's just pictures. No it's not. Anytime a picture is viewed or distributed, that child's being re victimized over and over and over and over again. I would say, and I don't have the empirical data to back this up, but using my best estimations, typically when we would do an investigation, anytime that we would go out and do a search warrant at a house, we always had a polygraph operator on standby. That's because we want to know whether or not this person's got pictures or videos or whether or not they're actually offending on somebody, right? If there's any victims out there that we don't know about, we need to find out. We need to rescue them. I would say, uh, A very good majority of the cases that I went on were people who have never been arrested before. No prior police reports, you know, contact with police. There's doctors I've arrested. There's teachers. There's coaches. There's, you know, homeless people. This this runs the gamut. It doesn't matter who you are. You know, people can have this stuff. So, and a lot of the people that we arrested who never had prior contacts with police, we didn't know whether or not they had any contacts with children. So we would, after we, you know, do the search warrant, we would interview them. We'd, you know, get their confession regarding the possession of the the child pornography. And sometimes they would admit to us whether or not they've actually had a contact offense or not. Other times we would take them to the polygraph. Probably 80% of the ones that we sent to the polygraph before they were even put on the box, before they were strapped up with all the stuff, ended up admitting to a contact offense that the law enforcement did not know about. So these people aren't just looking at pictures. This is kind of how they're building up their guts, for uh, lack of a better term, to go out and offend. But Because all of that material that's out there had to be produced at some point. Correct. You hear stories oftentimes of people who will trade produced content. 
So I'm going to produce something, but I get not only that content, but I can also trade it to you and get some content from you. Before I ask you this question, Brent, I want to ask you a question. For our listeners, Brent is a civic-minded individual and, in fact, is part of a jury call process. I want you to imagine, if you would, Brent, that you get called to actually sit on the jury and this is the type of case that comes up. Well, and they, they ask the question, can you be impartial until you hear the facts? And I think that's the great thing about our jury system is that you are presented the facts and you can make a determination because there have been times where people have been falsely accused of things. So, you know, you have Absolutely. to let the process run out. So, but yes, it, it's hard to be impartial too. <laughs> well, but I want you to imagine though, sitting in that jury box and some of these videos that have been produced they start playing in court as that trier of fact, as, as that finder of fact, you have to sit there and watch this. And the reason I bring this up, I just want you to imagine if you could, the impact that it's going to have on you as a man, as a human being, as a dad, it would be traumatic for you. Which is why a lot of defense attorneys object to it because, because it, it's too prejudicial. Yeah, too prejudicial. The problem is is that the trier of fact has got to be the one who determines whether or not this meets the de- legal definition of child pornography. And that's the way we do it. But just I, I, the only reason I ask you that, Brent, is I want you to imagine you get exposed to this in one case, the, the traumatic impact that it would have on you. And so, James, I'm going to ask you, what type of impact does this have on investigators that see this type of thing over and over and over again? It... Uh it has a really big impact. I've seen guys get PTSD from it, legit PTSD from it. I've seen people, as we both have, get into the bottle. I've seen it really screw up some great people. It is not easy to deal with. When you are sitting there for eight hours a day, going through millions, and I mean millions, of videos on somebody's computer of a child being sexually abused, it screws with your mind. It affects your relationships. It affects your relationships with your own children. You know, the, the mental health aspect of it for the investigators is something that I don't think many law enforcement agencies take very seriously. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of our department because we have started requiring anybody who investigates not only child pornography, like the guys, you know, in my unit, but anybody who investigates any kind of crime against a child, child abuse, child sexual abuse, whatever it may be, has to meet with a counselor at least once a year. I love that. At least once a year. The state police, when I was on the task force, they, they also required us to do that. You know, I remember at, at one point they were debating on moving our office within the state police organization to another area of the building that didn't have any as simple as this, didn't have any windows to the outside. And we all put up a fight and we all actually went to the state police therapist and said, listen, we have got to have windows because there's times to where when I'm sitting there for eight hours a day looking at a child being sexually abused, sometimes I need a break and I need to stare out a window and kind of turn it off a little bit. So it was something as simple as that. Just having a window in the office helped helped out the guys quite a bit. You know, we were all a very tight group. 
you know, we would, we would vent to each other. We were almost like a, our own peer to peer team without being a, a formalized peer to peer team because cops in general, everybody always wants to hear the cool stories, right? Yep. So all your buddies who are not cops, they want to hear the cool stories. Oh, what'd you do this week? You know, how many doors did you kick in? What'd you get? Yada, yada, yada. Cops ourselves don't want to hear stories about children. So there are times where officers may be on, you know, an accident death or a suicidal death or something that messes them up and they go to try to tell somebody who's non-law enforcement and those people are like, oh, I don't want to hear this stuff, right? Well, cops are the same way even when it comes to kids' stuff. Yep. So trying to go to um, a road guy or, uh, you know, your buddy who works narcotics and be like, man, hey, I had a really bad day today. You know, I had to watch a six-year-old girl being brutally raped for eight hours today. He doesn't want to hear that either, right? And so by requiring us to go and at least see a therapist at least once, at least it keeps that door open because, as you know, us in law enforcement, we don't like to ask for help. We like to internalize everything, which is horrifically bad for us. We had a case very recently. uh, It was earlier this year. I got a new guy on, on my unit to where we're doing all the forensic stuff. And we got a report of an individual who had some potential child pornography. So we end up doing the search warrant at the house. We recovered a, a bunch of evidence. And I know he had not, my guy who works for me had yet to be exposed to it. And I had every intention in the world of sitting him down and talking to him first to say, listen, the stuff you're about to see is going to be very gruesome. It's going to mess with you because I know that he's got a child of his own. And if you're uncomfortable seeing it right away, let me know and I won't expose it to you. And, you know, we'll, we can do this slowly, right? Had every That morning I thought about it all morning about how, I'm, how am I going to help him through this exposure? Because as supervisors, we have to. We can't just say, here's a case, Mike, go out and investigate it. If you get exposed, you get exposed. You know, if you are uh, a supervisor worth anything, and I'd like to think I'm a decent one, <laughs> you t- you look after your your people. Unfortunately, he got in earlier than me that day and started working on some of the evidence and got an exposure before I could have that conversation with them. And I knew it because you know there's three of us in our unit. We're all sitting in our office, and all of a sudden everything got real quiet. And my back was to him, and I said to myself, oh, shit. And I turned around, and I looked, and he was, you know, wiping his forehead from sweat. He was sweating. He was pale. And I said, are you all right? And he goes, no, I'm not. I said, did you just see something? Yeah. I said, well, shut it off. Go do something. I don't care what you do. Go take a long lunch, go talk to somebody, whatever you need to do to get your mind off of this. And so he did, you know, he, he shut down the computer and, you know, I, I felt like I failed him there as a boss, you know, because I didn't prepare him for it. But I sat down with him afterwards and I said, listen, I'm sorry. I had all, you know, every intention in the world to, to kind of walk you through this. It's still for me, I've been doing these types of crimes for 10 years now. Every one of them affects me, every one. And, you know, so I had that frank conversation with them and you have to, 
at that point you're you're no longer a supervisor, right? You got to be you got to be a friend because nobody wants to see this stuff. I mean, it is gruesome. I've seen infants in car seats being penetrated. And when you have children of your own, whether you have children of your own or not, it do, it doesn't matter. You're going to get affected. But especially when you have children of your own, it really affects you. You know, for whatever reason, when I had mine, I was always able to separate the boys, my boys, yep. from it. Even though I was seeing boys being abused. But once I had my daughter, all bets Game were changer. off. All bets were off. I saw her face on every victim. I, I, I could not even bathe her for a very long period of time. Not because I was worried about being sexually aroused no, or anything. I get it, man. Right? But because of everything that you see. I mean, to think that somebody can do that to something so small and so innocent. And of course, that builds up all your anger and everything else, you know, inside of you. And if you don't have somewhere to go, and and invent, get up, it's it's going to boil over, and bad things are going to happen. PTSD, as we've talked about before on the, this podcast, PTSD in law enforcement is very rarely ever associated with one incident. It's almost always cumulative. A few episodes ago, we had Joe Willis on here, and Joe works with the group First Help, and they have these hashtag events that they – the first one was hashtag I will talk, and then hashtag I will listen. I think the one that really hit home with me was hashtag so what, and the whole idea behind it was so you need help dealing with this? So what? So what? It doesn't make you any less of a person needing help. Mm -hmm. you know, so you need to go talk to somebody about this. So what? You know, you, <laughs> if yeah. you didn't, we probably have bigger issues. And you don't, you don't have to share all the, the details. No. You know, thankfully, my wife now, when I have one of these cases, I can come home and I can say, listen, sweetheart, it was not a good day today. It wasn't. I don't want to talk about it. And she knows. She gets it. But at some point, you need to you need to talk about how you're feeling, not necessarily what you saw, yes. but how it's making you feel. The, the impact that it had on you. This isn't this isn't an episode about alcoholism or suicide in law enforcement. But the truth of the matter is, there are times each and every one of us need help, and unfortunately, too many people try to self medicate through a variety of ways especially in our profession especially in our profession and the impact that it has on them post this profession in their retirement it, they're not the golden years mm. they're not the, the the good times that that we envision our head boy man as soon as i get through this and i get my time in and i can retire but if we don't deal with that trauma and that's what it is is trauma then we're, we're hurting ourselves long term and man i've said this a lot. And, and I, I hope it's not becoming cliche, but dedication that I see from people in this profession, I'm just blown away by it because James, I will tell you, dude, if I had to do the job that you did, my kids would be locked up in the basement, not as prisoners, yeah. <laughs> but, but for their protection because of what I've seen. And the fact that you're able to do it and not only do it, but 
do it well. Do it well so that people do go to jail. Mm-hmm. That the kids are rescued. Man, that just you know, like Brent's question earlier, how do you not lose your professionalism? You can't lose it because then a child's going to get hurt. You have to do your job because otherwise a child's going to get hurt. And you have to continue doing your job. Otherwise, a child's going to get hurt. Like I said earlier, some of my best friends in my career all came from those task forces. Mm-hmm. Whether they're retired now or not, we all know we can pick up the phone and call somebody any point of the day and say, hey, I need to talk. I've got friends who have been retired for five, six, seven years or more. And I know if I picked up the phone today and called them and said, hey, Steve, Aaron, whoever, I need to talk about what I did today at work. They would drop everything they're doing to listen because they know how important it is. Because you're right. It's it's repeated trauma over and over and over and over and over again. As important it is for, for people that do this job to talk. I think we'd, we would be remiss if we didn't put out there that in, in airports, for example, there's all these signs and, and posters about human trafficking, you know, call, be suspected to call somebody. And we have these, you know, the counterterrorism stuff. If you see something, mm-hmm. say something. Nowhere in our society is that concept more important than if you believe that a child's being abused. Yeah. To I, that point, real quick, if I may. Yes. Because we get these reports constantly. The reports of on Facebook or Instagram or pick your social media platform right. where they say, my girlfriend's kid had a, a T-shirt on the windshield wiper of their car at the local hotel or at the, I mean, at the local mall or or they, they tagged her car by chalking her tires or whatever. That's all nonsense. Yes. The, those are not what human traffickers do. Okay. Human traffickers look for vulnerable people, runaways, drug addicts, somebody that they can manipulate very easily into doing what they need or want them to do. Certainly, are they going to malls and maybe, you know, taking their victims to malls or looking for victims at malls? That's possible. I'm not saying it's not impossible, but these things that we get on Facebook and Instagram and everything else about, you know, they're tagging you by putting a t-shirt on your windshield and under the windshield wiper, that's nonsense. So don't call us on that stuff. But if you suspect a child is being abused, if a kid says something to you or or you see something that that quite honestly, it just isn't right, err on the side of caution. Absolutely. Call because it's out there a lot more than we think it is. I struggle. I struggle even now to think of anything that more abhorrent than abusing a kid. Yeah. But man, I appreciate what you do. Uh, I knew this was going to be a heavy episode. Yeah. I knew it was. I didn't want to uh, end this episode without supplying some sort of resources if someone's listening and they want to help in some way. So if you think you've seen a, a missing child or you suspect a child may be sexually exploited, contact the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. They have a uh, toll-free number you can call 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's 1-800-THE-LOST, T-H-E-L-O-S-T. You can also go to cybertipline.org. We'll put all those resources uh, in the episode page for this particular episode. And also, brought up a good point, uh, First Help. We'll put the resources for that if some folks are listening and they're in law enforcement and they say, you know what, I I need somebody to talk to. We'll put those resources in the uh, show notes as well. Yeah, and... You know, for the people who are listening, Nick Mick, any report that goes to Nick Mick does get funneled down to law enforcement. Yeah, we investigate every one of those 
um, they will send it to the proper jurisdiction and those do get investigated. You can get all those resources. We'll put them right there at uh, Between the Lines with virtualacademy.com. Again, uh, James, thank you for being here today. Thank you for the job you do. Thank you for your people. Uh, thank you for your agency, uh, the Dearborn Police Department, Michigan, for being so forward thinking and being so dedicated to the safety of our most vulnerable people. So thank you for what you do, Brent. Thank you for what you do. I appreciate you uh, being a part of this with me as we try to get the good word out about what our people do in very horrific, horrific situations. It's a tough subject to cover, but it's one that we we probably need to spend some more time informing and raising awareness about for the general public. So we have those resources out there. I hope people uh, exercise the ability to go out and and find out more about it and help some some children that need help. Again, uh, that uh, website is cybertipline.org and toll-free number 1-800-THE-LOST. And we'll put that on our website at Between the Lines with virtualacademy.com. Thank you.